At a baseball game, a spectator wants to be as close to the action as possible. The best seats are back of home plate or behind the dugout, but not so at a NASCAR race. Now, I suppose if you want to just feel the power and the rush of the cars, you'll bring some earplugs and you'll just sit as close to the track as possible. But if you're actually interested in the race and you'd like to see which driver wins and why, you need a seat that gives you a higher vantage point. Views from the first five rows in the grandstand at a motor speedway are obscured by the catch fence. The cars just blur by. You're too low to see the overall action. The best seats are higher up, way above the asphalt. At most NASCAR tracks, the prime seats are above row 20. At Daytona or Talladega, they say you need to be no lower than row 40, preferably higher. And the best seats are just above the turn. The premier seats at Dover and Bristol and Martinsville are at the entrance to turn one. The turn is where the action happens. When the cars enter a curve, they slow down and they bunch up and they start jockeying for position. NASCAR racing gets more intense in the turns. Now I say this to point out that understanding your Bible is like taking in a NASCAR race. There are times when you want to be close up to the action. I mean, you can learn a lot by putting yourself in Abraham's sandals, thinking what it must have been like when God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac, or by sampling Joseph's emotions when the brothers who sold him into slavery now come begging for his help. You can learn a lot by imagining yourself in the boat with Peter as he stepped out and walked on the water. Or, or what if you were a friend of Lazarus when Jesus raised him from the dead? I mean, there's a lot to be gained by getting up close and personal with your Bible. But as with a NASCAR event, if you're trying to understand the story of the Bible, if you're interested in who wins and why, then you need a broader perspective. You need a seat where you can see the entire track. And I hope to bring you that over the next eight weeks. We're going to take a look at the whole book. We're going to see the big picture, and we're going to particularly focus on the turns. Think of your Bible as a racetrack with seven major turns. The race is won or lost in the turns, and the turns in God's story are His covenants. We're going to begin at the starting line. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But then comes turn one. God creates a man and a woman, and he plops them down in a plentiful Eden, in a garden paradise. God and man, they enjoy fellowship with one another. They have an understanding, agreed upon terms. We call it a covenant. This was the first of God's covenants. But the first couple, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And they shattered this relationship. They ate the forbidden fruit. Sin contaminated the human race. Mankind falls from his original innocence. And now the arrangements between God and man, between man and woman, between man and nature, they get altered. 
And God has to deal differently. Thus, he initiates another covenant. And yet, despite God's covenant with Adam, life on earth goes from bad to worse. God starts over. He floods the earth. And he saves Noah's family. When Noah exits the ark, he walks out into a frightful new world. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. Life is now very, very scary to Noah. Man faces new predators. He needs new assurances. Another turn occurs in God's plan. He establishes a third covenant with Noah. But sadly, Noah's heirs, they blow their chance, their second chance to please God. Mankind rebels, and he organizes a global coup d'etat. God puts down the revolt at the Tower of Babel, and it launches another turn in God's dealings. Rather than work with mankind as a whole, now God chooses a single family, and he establishes a fourth covenant, this time with a man named Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham, and again, we'll talk about it later, becomes the blueprint for all of God's future plans. In fact, God saves us and returns us to the garden through this covenant. All the covenants are pivotal, but the Abrahamic covenant is more so. God made his friend Abraham three promises. A chunk of land, a people, and a blessing. Here's how we're going to learn the Abrahamic covenant. Sod, seed, salvation. Now, the final three covenants, they all grow out of this one. Now, let me admit what I'm about to say is an oversimplification, and I'll correct it later, but it's helpful here. God is going to next make a covenant with Moses, and that's about the land, the sod. He institutes a covenant with David. That's about the people, the seed. And then the covenant that Jesus came to activate is all about the blessing, the salvation. But these three covenants, these final covenants, even our salvation, grow out of the seminal covenant that God made with Abraham. Now remember, where will you find the action at a NASCAR race? In the turns. And God makes His moves through His covenants. They mark seven turning points in His dealings with man. Think again of the racetrack. The start flag drops. At turn one, God creates man and establishes a relationship with him. But coming out of the first turn, man crashes. And God makes a new arrangement with Adam. But man crashes again. And God makes another covenant with Noah. Then he crashes again. He sins, and this time he strikes a deal with Abraham. You get the idea that man crashes a lot? After Abraham, there are three more moves. God amplifies his covenant by making arrangements with Moses and with David and through Jesus. And it is this last covenant, the new covenant, that takes us back to where we started, to a garden paradise. But it's not the same garden. It's better. It's eternal. Revelation envisions our eternal state. And it includes a river and fruit And trees. There's even the tree of life. After Adam's sin, mankind was barred from that tree. But in the end of God's covenantal plan, we're all sitting under its shade, eating its fruit, living forever. We're going to learn that the story of the Bible is not just one of retrieval, 
of returning us home. No, it is the story of redemption, and that is far better. We come home, but we get there in better shape than we left. Surely the Bible is full of interesting and important details. God colors between the lines. But when you connect the dots, the story of the Bible is capsulized in seven dramatic turns, in seven suspense-filled covenants. Today we're going to tackle the first of those covenants, the Edenic covenant. But before we go further, let's make sure you know what we mean when we speak of a covenant. A covenant is an agreement between parties. It's an arrangement of relationship. It's the terms that guide our interactions. I think it's helpful to distinguish between a covenant and a contract. You know, when the United States expanded westward, our government signed treaties with the Indians. The Indians thought they were making covenants. Sadly, our government saw those agreements as contracts, and in many cases, contracts to be broken. Reminds me of the old Indian chief sitting by his teepee on the reservation when he was approached by two government agents. The agents asked him, they said, Chief, two eagles, your people signed treaties with the white man, but it didn't work out so well for the Indian. What went wrong? Chief, two eagles answered, when Indian in charge... No taxes, no debt, plenty buffalo, plenty beaver, medicine man free, Indian brave hunt and fish all day, Indian squall do all the work around the teepee. The chief kind of leaned back, took a long drag on his peace pipe, and finally he sighed, white man dumb enough to try to improve on system like that. Hey, I'm sure there's a lot that we can learn from the Indians. And the sacredness and specialness of a covenant would be one of those lessons. You see, a contract is an agreement entered into out of suspicion. The contract is needed because the two parties don't trust each other. A contract limits my responsibility and clarifies the least of what's expected. Whereas a covenant is a commitment born out of trust and respect and love. It's an agreement between folks who love each other. The covenant lays out a goal and the role that each party plays to achieve that goal. It's a pledge to do whatever it takes to work together for the common good. When you buy a house, you sign a contract. I mean, the seller is afraid that you won't pay all he's asking. You're afraid that you won't get all you're buying. And so to avoid being cheated, both parties are protected by a legal agreement, a contract. But when you enter a marriage, you're not just signing a contract, you're entering a covenant. You're embarking on a relationship with someone you love and who loves you. A covenant outlines expectations, but it doesn't limit our commitment. A covenant is based on love, and real love is limitless. You see, contracts are based on fear. Covenants are all about faith. And it has always been God's desire to have a covenant relationship with His people. A covenant is a faith-based relationship between God and us. And to really grasp God's covenants, you need to know God. 
The God of the Bible is a personal, relational God, not just some inanimate force. Some people think of God as spiritual electricity. Just plug into the God socket and get a jolt. No, no, no. God is a person. God wants to know and be known. God desires genuine relationship. Remember, he walked with Adam in the cool of the day. The Bible reveals to us that the true God is a triune God. One person existing in three distinct persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, which means God is and has always existed in relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Son pleases the Father. The Spirit magnifies the Son. The Bible declares God is love. And from eternity past, God has dwelt in a loving relationship. This is why throughout the Bible, God is always depicted in relation to His people. He is either our husband, or our father, or even our shepherd. God always reveals Himself in the Bible through relationships. This is why the only way to really apprehend theology is in the context of relationships. I mean, try to decipher some doctrines in the abstract and confusion reigns. Think think of the big doctrines of predestination and free will. I mean, you're going to rack your brain trying to reconcile those doctrines until you put them in the context of a parent and their child. You see, a parent knows what's best for his kid, but he also wants his kid to learn to make wise decisions. So there were times with my children that I allowed them to choose, all the while framing it in a way that determined their choice. You know how that works if you're a parent. My point is, understanding relationships is the key to good theology. God's will, God's ways are always best grasped in the context of His relationships. Ultimately, God's love sought for an object outside of Himself to love. And this is why He created humankind. God fashioned the heavens and the earth. He sculpted heavenly bodies and heavenly beings. He made times and seasons. He spawned flora and fauna. But all that God created was intended to support the apex of His handiwork, the man. The man was the only one of God's creatures made in His image. His creation reflected His handiwork, but man was stamped with God's own image. God loved the man and the woman. He bestowed on them privilege and honor. He put them in charge of His creation, including the angels. They ruled with God. Of all He created, God chose to partner or to covenant with man. And the rest of the Bible is the working out of a series of covenants that God uses to engage man in relationship with himself. You know, this all speaks one truth very clearly. God is determined to have a relationship with man. Indeed, he is. God refuses to let our sin spoil his salvation. God is relentless in his attempts to reach us and convict us, and forgive us, and redeem us. This is the primary reason you're, you, your life, this is the primary reason you were conceived and created. 
You know, some people think God made humans primarily to serve Him or to speak for Him or praise Him. But you know, His angels could do all of that far more efficiently than we could. No, if you haven't yet discovered the reason you exist, here it is. The God in heaven, the God who created all mankind, wants a relationship with you. Amazing. Yet God isn't interested in just any type of relationship. You see, God always arranges a relationship by instituting a covenant. Before God enters into a relationship, He insists on an understanding. We enter in on an agreement. Terms are laid out. Boundaries are set and expectations established. And understand, God is the person who establishes the terms. God doesn't allow you or me to try to decide what type of relationship we'd like to have with Him. I mean, some folks try to relate to God a la carte. They pick from the menu the commandments that they want to keep and maybe the details they want to believe. But hey, God is the covenant maker. God dictates the terms of our fellowship, not us. You know what's interesting? We live at a time when everybody, everybody today, from politicians to porn stars, claim to have a relationship with God. But it all depends on their adherence to God's covenant. God won't hang out with folks until they accept His terms. It's His covenant that matters. And it's God's covenants throughout the ages that have given mankind a picture of what it really looks like for man to be in relationship with God. Of course, the idea of a covenant that God needs to structure or order a relationship with us implies that left to ourselves, life can get out of order. I mean, in the perfect world, there would be no need to draw up covenants. Yet from the very outset of the Bible, we realize that we no longer live in a perfect world. I mean, the Bible consists of 1,189 chapters, and it takes just three before it all gets messed up. By the end of chapter three, God's perfect utopia goes haywire. The man and the woman sin and rebel. In fact, you get a hint of trouble that things have gone wrong in the very second verse of your Bible. You know verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But verse 2 reads, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And this is not what we would expect. Throughout Genesis 1, After each aspect of God's creation, we're told that it was good. Verse 31 sums it all up by saying, it was all very good. And in verse 2, the earth is without form and void. Wait a minute. I thought it was all very good. And yet here we see that it's unformed and unfilled. The Hebrew phrase is tohu wabohu. The terminology usually describes the aftermath of judgment, like a battlefield after a battle or a town after a tornado. In Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth is a shapeless, empty, ominous mess, just a vast sea of chaos and darkness. Not what we would call very good. Reminds me of the three professionals, a doctor, an engineer, and a lawyer. They were all arguing 
over whose occupation was considered the oldest. Well, the doctor noted that God had performed surgery on Adam to create Eve. I mean, God had opened up Adam's side, proving that the medical profession was oldest. The engineer, though, he pointed to creation. He said in just six days, God started with chaos and confusion and constructed the universe. That's when the lawyer jumped in. He said, where do you think the chaos came from? Hey, Isaiah 45, verse 18, casts a light on Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Let me read to you Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. Notice God says in Isaiah, that the earth was not created in vain or tohu. It's the exact same Hebrew word used in Genesis 1 verse 2. The second verse of your Bible says that the earth was created unformed and unfilled. Isaiah says that it was created formed and inhabited. So which is it? Well, perhaps it's both. I believe a gap in time exists between verses 1 and 2 in Genesis chapter 1. Now often we're asked, when did God create the angels? The Bible isn't precise, but in Job 38, God quizzes Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The phrases, morning stars and sons of God, are Hebrew idioms for angelic beings. The implication is, is that the angels were created before God laid the foundations of the earth. The angels were created before God went to work on the earth in Genesis 1 verse 2. We also know from Scripture that one of the upper echelon angels sinned and rebelled against God. This is well documented. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12 describe Lucifer's fall. The name Lucifer means light bearer. Lucifer was this radiant creature, perhaps the embodiment of light. Ezekiel implies that he was heaven's worship leader. That is, until pride entered his heart. He tried to steal the praise from God. Revelation 12 tells us that a third of the angels joined in Lucifer's revolt. In Luke 10, verse 18, Jesus stated, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now let me admit, what I'm about to say is speculation, but it makes some sense. It could be that God created the heavens and the earth, including the angels. Then Satan fell and plunged the creation into darkness and chaos. Lucifer's fall caused this horrible judgment that damaged God's original creation and left the earth unformed and unfilled. Thus, Genesis 1 verse 2 is essentially a recreating of the heavens and the earth. Now, there is a Hebrew tradition which explains why Lucifer fell. It seems he got wind of God's plan to create man from the dust of the ground and give him dominion over all his creation. That meant that one day, Lucifer, the glorious radiant one, would be serving dust mites and hairballs like you and me. 
No way could he let this happen. Consumed with pride and envy, Satan launched an all-out war on God. And where did he strike? His first move was to stop God's creation. To stop it from happening. Notice in Genesis 1 verse 2, darkness is on the face of the deep. While God's Spirit hovers over the waters. It seems to me that battle lines are being drawn. Job 26 speaks of creation in a most unexpected way. God hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in His thick clouds. He stirs up the sea with His power and breaks up the storm. By His Spirit, He adorned the heavens. His hand pierced or twisted the fleeing serpent. What a scene! God wrestles with a serpent as He creates the world. You see, an arrogant Satan didn't want to serve something as humble as mankind. And so he tried to thwart God's designs for us. He tried to stop creation from even happening. We don't usually think of creation as a battle, but it was. It was the first skirmish in a long-running war. When you think about it, this all becomes strangely flattering. I mean, despite all of the spectacles in our vast universe, did you know the spiritual realm is focused on a single nondescript galaxy, one of a hundred million? Out of that galaxy's 300 million stars, heaven's attention is on one solitary star. Of that star's nine planets, angels and demons are focused on just one, the third rock. And of the earth's two million species of living creatures, did you know that all eyes in heaven are glued on you and me? They're glued on man. Hey, so often we get up, we feel worthless, we get bored. We, we wonder, why are we getting up in the morning? But understand this, the heavies of the universe are locked in mortal combat over you and me. You are very special to God. There is a celestial battle raging in the heavens, and mankind is the prize. Author Mike Russ puts it, One of the few things God and Satan agree on is that we are immensely valuable. Remember, God is after relationship with us. And His means of achieving it is through covenant. Now after God's creation, this serpent, Satan, he appears again. This time in Genesis 3, he appears in the garden to tempt man. You see, if Satan can't stop God's creation, he's now going to try to spoil it. But the battle continues to rage down through the centuries. Now, when you study world history, remember, there's a backstory that's not written in the history books. Behind the scenes, a war is raging for the souls of men. Beyond the politics and conflicts and personalities and ambitions of history, a spiritual war against God is being waged by Satan. At times in the Scriptures, we get little glimpses of this spiritual battle. We read in Exodus of Moses and how he took the people out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land. But Psalm 74 describes Israel's exodus from a spiritual perspective. The psalmist speaks of the serpent of old re-emerging in the waters of the Red Sea, opposing Israel's crossing. Revelation 12 fast forwards to the end of the age 
and depicts again the serpent attacking God's people Israel. In Revelation 13, the Antichrist, the future leader who organizes a revolt against God is depicted as a beast rising out of the sea to deceive the world. We see the same story played out over and over. Here's the point. From beginning to end, the Bible is the story of a battle. Satan's desire is to destroy mankind while God is determined to restore mankind to a relationship with Him. And His means for doing so is through covenant. The first covenant that God made with man was in the Garden of Eden. God situated Adam and Eve in Shangri-La, a utopia in an oasis named Eden. The man and the woman were perfect. Their world was perfect. I mean, think about it. Adam always took out the garbage without even being asked. Eve never griped or complained. There was plenty of fruit for them both to eat. The first couple, they never argued. They enjoyed unbroken harmony and intimacy. They were servants to each other. Their sinless minds were oblivious to their own needs. So much so that they were able to live naked and unashamed. Believe it or not, Adam even had a job. It's a perfect world. Eden had 0% unemployment. God placed Adam in charge of his creation. Adam had dominion and authority. As I mentioned earlier, God stamped the man and woman with his image. Like God, they were rational and relational and moral and spiritual. Part of his likeness in man was the authority to rule. Though man is to submit to God, he was also made to share God's dominion over nature. You need to understand how important this truth happens to be. This is what distinguishes Western civilization from Eastern cultures. I mean, the Christian West, reared on biblical thought, in the Christian West, we understand God to be separate from nature. And because he's separate from nature, he's given humans the job of subduing and harnessing nature for man's benefit. As a result, the West has advanced scientifically and technologically. Whereas the East is dominated by pantheism, that God is a part of nature. Thus, rather than subdue nature, man's role is to be one with his surroundings. This is why cows feed off crops while people starve to death. This is why Indian traffic gets tied up by free-roaming elephants. Hinduism, as well as animism, teaches its adherents to deify nature rather than subdue it. Sadly, the worship of oneness is prevalent in our country's pop religion. Hey, we need to wake up and understand that what we believe really does matter. Our beliefs, our faith, will either hold us back or let us advance. Made in God's image. Wow. What a thought. And this thought has multiple meanings. None of which, though, is more important than the idea of self-determination. For like God, man has a free will. God made us that way. God made us so that we could decide for ourselves. Humans can choose to love or hate. To give or take. To bow down or bow up to serve or be selfish, to obey or go our own way. This is the way God's made us. We bear God's image. We are self-determinative. 
And to allow Adam and Eve to live out this aspect of his image, God planted in the Garden of Eden a tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He planted this tree, but he forbid eating its fruit. God told Adam that if they nibbled off this tree, they would surely die. In a sense, history is about two trees. The tree in Eden where man died to his innocence and broke off his relationship with God. And another tree, the tree on Calvary, where Jesus died to ultimately restore what man had broken. There were hundreds, perhaps hundreds, maybe thousands of trees in Eden. And they all had permissible fruit, including the tree of life. I mean, Adam had this fountain of youth. It was trees, a tree and fruit. God only restricted the fruit from one tree. Only one tree was off limits. And did you know this is still God's practice? God gives His people tremendous liberty. God has packed our world with good gifts, and He encourages us to enjoy His goodness. The taboos are few and far between, and yet Satan twists the truth. Listen to the tempter, and he'll have you ignore God's blessings and get fixated on the few pleasures he forbids. That's how he works. Hear how the serpent tempts Eve in Genesis 3 verse 4. First he tempts her to doubt God's word. He says, you will not surely die. God lied to you. You won't surely die. And then the devil tempts her to doubt God's love. He he says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is how he tempts us. To doubt God's word and to doubt God's love. Satan accuses God of holding Eve back, keeping her down. He he, he labels God a hindrance to the good life. Oh, if Eve wants enlightenment, she'll need to shed God's authority, march to her own drummer, get out there and find herself. Satan tempts Eve by telling her that she she can be like God. Isn't that odd? She was already like God. She was God's image bearer. She was like God, but she was not God. And this is what Satan attempts to confuse. It's one thing to reflect God. It's another thing to take the place of God. You see, mankind occupies a rung on the ladder that is always just below God. If we try to scale too high and usurp the place of God and act like our own God, death will result. And die they did. Eventually, both Adam and Eve, they would die physically. Death corrupted the human gene pool. But first, they died spiritually. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he and his wife became separated from God. Sin drove a wedge between the man and the woman and God. The opening act of the Bible teaches us that life blooms when we trust God. But deadness, both physical and spiritual death, result when we don't. Rather than freedom, Eve ended up a puppet of Satan and a slave to her own sin. The key to life is not autonomy from God, but it's dependence on God. I read one author who said when mankind fell, he fell upwards. He fell upwards. You see, Adam didn't slither and slide into a cesspool of shameful sin. Oh no, he stuck out his chest. 
He decided to be better. He wanted to try to scale to a higher plane. But he did it on his own. That's what made it sin. In essence, he said that he didn't need God. He could be his own God. And this is the mistake that people still make. Oh, they get educated. Or pride makes them think they know it all. They assume they no longer need God. John Stott writes, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We'll get to that later. You see, the covenant God made in Eden was to test the man's love for him. God placed Adam and Eve in the perfect environment, gave them a perfect job. God made them co-rulers of His world. But then He placed the forbidden fruit within man's reach so that Adam could demonstrate his love for God. Hey, for love to be meaningful, it has to be voluntary. You have to choose to love. If you love me but have no other choice, it's a hollow love, isn't it? If Kathy had taken her wedding vows with the nose of a shotgun stuck in her back, I'd still be wondering. And that's why God gave Adam one prohibition, one, one prohibition, by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam could prove how smart he really was by loving and trusting God. Instead, Adam chose unbelief. Rather than trust God to have his best interests at heart, Adam viewed God as the bad guy. He's robbing me. He's just keeping me down. He's stealing my joy. And you see, this is the root of all sin. Do we trust God or doubt God? Do we hope in Him or rely on me? Adam's tragic decision plunged all mankind into sin. Adam and Eve and all their descendants were booted from the garden. Genesis 3 says that a special ops angel guarded the tree of life so that Adam and Eve couldn't return and eat of its fruit. If they had, they would have lived forever in a fallen, sinful condition. It was God's grace that He blocked their path. Sadly, in Genesis 3, Satan succeeds in killing Adam and Eve, at least killing them spiritually. He baited them into throwing away their relationship with God. It's been said, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and it put all mankind in a jam. But God responded as He always does with a covenant. Throughout the Bible, God is never content without a relationship with man. Despite our willfulness, God is always warning and wooing and working to restore us And at every turn, a God-given covenant comes to our rescue. 